so uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24, it says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it's at this point, the, this is the culminating act of God in creation. The culminating act of God in creation is family. This is, this is where he, he has reached the point in which now mankind can reflect his image. This is the basic unit that God has planned for society as family. This is what he has intended to fully image who he is as creator God. This is how we create flourishing in humanity. Families are what? They're meant to steward. They're meant to nurture that, the, the individual identity of God in, in that dignity in every member of the family. It's where a proper authority is established, where there's proper hierarchy that's established. It provides a real and a tangible place for, for true intimacy, an environment for relationship intimacy and well-being at every level. So taking on the responsibility of our God-given roles in family is the primary means that we're going to live out our created purpose and fulfillment, that we're going to find the meaning, that we're going to demonstrate the gospel. Amen? It's really quiet this morning. Must be the ladies. Oh, okay. So if I want to destroy God, what do I do? If I want to destroy God in society, I do one thing. Destroy the family. In one, uh, Jordan Peterson was giving a, a lecture at one of his, uh, at a university. I couldn't tell what university it was. It was a Q&A session that was going on. And there was a young woman from the back of the audience who asked Jordan Peterson this question. She says, what's your antidote for toxic masculinity? Have I heard toxic masculinity before? In many circles today, men are toxic, men are oppressive, or men are buffoons, or men are unnecessary. I mean, you know, that's what our culture reflects in so many places. Uh, you, just, you can do a quick search. Just do a quick search. Well, actually, don't do it. It's horrible. It'll break your heart. But I, I did a quick search on, you know, men as oppressors. And real fast, I've got uh, this one feminist mother who wrote this. She wrote this. She was pregnant, and she knew she was going to have a little boy. She actually wrote this. She didn't just think it. She wrote this. There were dark moments in the middle of the night when I felt sick at the thought of something male growing inside of me. See, what breaks my heart about that is not a judgment against her, but she's actually upset about the very thing that's going to create flourishing in the life. That's as much destruction for her as it is for him. There was another video, I watched another video, and this young woman got on, and, and she's recording her. She said, listen, she says, girls, ladies, young women, when you date men, you're dating your oppressor. How would you like to go into a relationship like that? You see, there is literally a war on fatherhood and manhood, and I'm telling you it's not accidental. It's not accidental. It's a means, uh, if, if we want to destroy Western society, we destroy God. If we want to destroy God, we destroy the family. If we want to destroy family, it's very simpler, take out fathers. There was a, um, there, the, a, a book by a scholar named Noel Maring, and in this, this is kind of a long quote that I have here, but I think it's worth it to, to go to where we want to go this morning. She's, she's writing about Mary Eberhardt in, in, in our book, Primal Screams, and she says this, 
Mary Eberhardt compellingly posits that the reason we have so tribally obsessed with oppressed group identities is directly related to the fracturing of the family as a consequence of the sexual revolution. She's saying, listen, she's saying, it's on purpose. The sexual revolution was on purpose in order to fracture families in order to create tribal identities outside of families. The dramatic changes in the integrity of family life reflect an acute increase in fatherlessness, illegitimacy, infidelity, divorce, and are not merely in correlation to the rise of identity politics. There are those who are doing this on purpose. The loss of our identity within the family has created generations of people who were wounded, stunted, and in search of what was withheld from them. In losing the family, we've lost our very selves and are left desperately grasping at any identity on offer to us, whether it's contrived or otherwise. You see, listen, family is the basic way that God has given us to know who we are, to know our purpose in him in this world. And when we destroy that, we'll take anything because it's missing. We're hurt, we're lonely, we're broken. Now, there was a, there's a, a group of scholars who got together in the 1930s. They were called the Frankfurt School. And they literally wanted to bring Marxism into the West. Listen, I, this sounds like I'm being, that this is a political message. I'm not being political here. It sounds like it. I'm not being political. What I'm saying is, this is what's going on in our society. And if we're going to be the church, we need to know what's happening in our society so we can live the gospel. This group, the Frankfurt School, according to the Frankfurt School, they promoted a culture deeply resistant to revolution due to the internalized authoritarianism. What he's saying is this. The Frankfurt School said, look, the reason why Marxism didn't get a hold in the West is because they have strong families. They have strong families because they believe in God. So what are we going to do? The means of promulgating, in other words, destroying the authoritarianism in the West was the, was, was the way of the patriarchal family. So the next revolution would be the first to dispose the father and install the mother. Very simple. We'll destroy the father and we'll put the mother in. Now, there are a lot of statistics. That there's, one, there's one man who's written seven books on uh, men and women and their identities and culture. The issues, their issues. His name is Warren Farrell. He's not particularly a Christian. He doesn't, he literally comes from a very um, uh, uh, different background than most of us. But he understands this issue. He said, when the first time in the history of the United States, the first time in our history, boys have less education than their fathers. Boys are one-third less likely to get a college degree. They're twice as likely to commit suicide. He said, in 70 areas, 70 areas, children are doing worse because of fatherlessness. And I'm just going to name a few of them. Delinquency, disobedience, dropping out of school, worse social skills, less self-control, lower grades, less empathy, lower trust, more bullying behavior, more sibling rivalry, uh, school shootings, unemployment, going to jail, joining gangs, becoming homeless. And, and I've got some other statistics Child abuse is twice as likely in, with, in a home without a father. Uh, crime is twice as likely uh, uh, in a home without a father. 
Drug and alcohol abuse is two times uh, more likely, twice as likely in, in homes without fathers. Um, children who were born out of wedlock. This one uh, uh, hit me as I was reading through it. Because we live in a culture, you know, why get that piece of paper? Why do we need to get married? What do we need that for? You know, that it actually lowers the education level of children. We have statistically, this is not, I'm not giving opinion here. There's data for all of this. Poverty. Single parent families are five times more likely to be poor as a married family. There's a social uh, uh, economic, uh, um, sociologist and economist, economic and analyst, his name is George Gilder. He said this, literally, literally, if we wiped out fatherless homes, we could wipe out poverty, poverty statistically. Now look, are there problems and issues in society that need to be addressed? Is, it, is every two-parent home a perfect place? No, that's why we're talking about this. That's why we need to understand how important it is that we do what God's called us to do and be who God's called us to be as men, as fathers. Are there, uh, you know, are there issues that need to be addressed? Yes. But the issue isn't destroying it. The issue is redeeming it. That's what Jesus came to do. Simply put, father absence is the most consequential social problem we confront. Do we have a lot of social issues? Yes, we have a lot of social issues. But it's like this. It's like saying there's a flood coming and say you need to learn how to use a fire extinguisher. We're fighting the wrong issues. Father absence not accidental. The very survival of our society depends on you and me, men, being godly men and fathers. Ladies, having godly sons, husbands, brothers. After 50 years of ignoring, ignoring the Bible, experimenting with people's lives, and spending millions of dollars in studies, we end up right where we started. A society cannot survive if we as men don't stand up and be godly men and fathers. No more time to sit on the side. Do you know, it wasn't always like that. I'm going to tell some stories. His first story was in the February of 1852. There was a ship, HMS Birkenhead. It was the first iron-hulled troop ship that was built by the British Royal Navy, iron-hulled ship. It was carrying 643 troops. It had women and children, and they were all going as fast as they could to get to South Africa. The men on the board were the 72 Highlanders. These were descendants of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, and they were also had the 42nd Infantry. At 2 a.m. in the morning on February, 20, uh, February 26th, it struck an uncharted rock with such force that it instantly fl- uh, f- um, flooded the lower deck and killed 100 people, drowned 100 soldiers. Now those that made it up on the deck, they were ordered, the men were ordered to line up in formation. And they took all the women and children and they put them on uh, rowboats. And the captain made the men stand there in formation until the women and children were far enough away that none of the men could swim to them to try to save their lives and capsize the women and children. Ship goes down. 
The men are standing shoulder to shoulder. There's no horns blowing. There's no parade marching. It's just men, young and old. They're shaking each other's hands. They're facing the stark reality of death. More are dying than the great white sharks come in. Kill many more. 113 men survive a 12 to 8 hour long night at sea as they're tossed to the shore by the surf. Now why is this significant? It's the first time in the history, maritime history in which you had the statement women and children first. The first time in maritime history they said women and children first. Since that point forward it became standard doctrine on board ships. Now here's my question. How were the men able to do this? How were they able to stand there and do this while that happened? I'm going to tell you how. A thousand year history of a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview that said men are the head of their households, which means what? That means I'm the first to die in a crisis. That's what that means. Servant leadership. It means at a thousand year history of a biblical worldview as the provider for my family, I'm the protector of my family. And a thousand year history of a biblical worldview that says I'm here to sacrificially lay my life down just like Jesus laid his life down. That's the gospel for my family. And that means not only in a crisis, that means every day. Now we begin to understand what Paul was saying when he was writing to a Roman society who saw men as, as next to gods in their homes. Their wives were their property. Their children were their property. Their slaves were their property. Everything was owned by them. And he spoke to those men and he said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I want you to hear that a different way. Love your wives as Christ loved you because you're the church. And gave his life for you that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, having cleansed you, being sanctified, washed by the water with the word, so that he might present you to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that you might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, love your wives as you love your own body. Whoever loves his wife, guess what? You love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. If you want to know what love means, he just told you to nourish and to cherish your family. Just as Christ does the church. That message to the church in Rome transformed family transform the understanding of, of society, of community. Those Christians, early Christians, would go to the dumps where they dumped the babies after they were born and bring them into their homes and raise them up. The fatherless, the widows, they would take care of the widows. They made sure there was proper distribution for the, for the widows and those who didn't have. Pure and undefiled religion is to take care of widows and the fatherless, to take care of single-family homes, and to keep your life unstained from the world. In the 1800s, there was a man, his name was Lord Baton Powell. He was the commanding officer of the British forces in South Africa. He only had a thousand men. And he ended up trapped between a, in a, 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 at the bottom of a valley. It was a city named Mafeking. 
There was no natural defensive barrier for this city. He was outgunned, he was outmanned, he was ill-equipped, and he was ill-numbered because there were 9,000 boars lined up around him and sieging the city for 217 days. And he held them off. How did he hold them off? He held them off with ingenuity. How did he do it? They knew that he had cannons, so they stayed far, far away back in sieging, besieging the city. They were, they were trying to starve them out. They stayed far away back that the cannons couldn't reach them. Well, he knew how far back they were. He didn't have any barbed wire, so he sent his men out with posts and fake rolls of barbed wire. And they put posts in the ground, and they pretended like they wrapped barbed wire around. They did three layers of that. Then, then they took boxes that they didn't have any landmines, but they took boxes and made them look like landmines, and they would go out. And every time they'd come to the barbed wire, they pretended to go through the barbed wire, and they would bury these boxes like they were putting landmines everywhere. And then he dug trenches inside the city everywhere so that they could, they only had two cannon, so that they could quickly move the cannon back and forth, and they would fire them off in different directions real fast, so they thought they had a lot more cannons. And then they knew they had spies in the city, so he said this. He said, spies, we know who you are tomorrow. We're going to string you up. you got one night to get out of here. And all the spies left the city. But he did something else. He was able to withstand the siege until forces were able to come and help him. But one of the outcomes of that is he took the boys and he trained the boys to be men. The boys were running errands, they were moving equipment, they were carrying messages. He trained the boys to be men. Men parent differently than mothers. There's a reason why we need a mother and a father. Look, if we, you know, there is broken families all throughout the Bible. You know, but we don't live by the exception, we live by the rule. When you have the opportunity to take the responsibility, you live by the responsibility God's given you. God makes up for the difference, but men and women parent very much differently. Women are, are naturally much more nurturing. They're much more empathetic to the needs of their kids. They're much more in touch to where their needs are. But do you know being empathetic doesn't teach a child to be empathetic? Why? Because you're attentive to their need over and over and over again. That, what does that teach? That teaches the child that I'm the center. What teaches the child to be empathetic? When the father comes along and says, I'm going to teach the child to do for themselves. I'm going to teach the child that they need to care about mama, that they need to care about their brothers and sisters, that they need to care about the needs of others. When I was, when I was coming up, my father said to me, he said, when you leave this house, the last person you see is your mother. You tell her where you're going, who you're going to see, how long you're going to be there, when you're going to get home, and how she can get a hold of you. Obviously, this was before cell phones. Except the GPS mama said it's in your pocket, right? And she says, and when you come home, the first person you see is your mother. My father was teaching me to be empathetic to my mother. When my kids were little, <laughs> we did this. We didn't, I didn't know all this stuff. Most of us don't know all this stuff. We do it because it's how God wired us. When my kids were little, my, my wife and I took our kids to the park one day. And we're at the park. 
and she's got my daughter over here, and my son uh, uh, had some sensory issues, and, and he would, uh, uh, when he would experience certain things, it would create a lot of fear in him. So I wanted to help him overcome that. I wanted to help him to grow past it. So we go to this monkey bars, and it, the monkey bars like a ladder. Picture a ladder that's bent in a semicircle like this. And you just climb over it like that. It's no higher than this. And he's about four or five years old. I think he's about five. And, uh, uh, and so he climbs up to like the second bar and he goes, that's it. No more, no more, no more. I want to get down, I want to get down. And I was like, no. I said, Isaac, I've got you. Look at me. Look at me in my eyes. Do you see me? I've got you. Yeah, I see you. You're not going anywhere. You can't go anywhere. I have you. I want you to take one more step up. He's like, no, I'm afraid. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And Diane's watching us. And as Diane's watching us, her blood's starting to boil. What is she doing to my son? She was so mad and so angry with me, she literally took Brenda and walked to the other side of the playground. But by the time she came back, Isaac was going back and forth over this thing. Hey, look at this. Isn't this fun? Wow, this is awesome. And she goes, he's so lucky. So then there was another thing in the, in the playground. It was a swing thing, and he didn't like swings at all. And I did the same thing all over again. He goes, oh, there she goes again. She walks off somewhere else and she comes back later and he's swinging and laughing. Listen, a mother is needed to meet the child right where she is. A father calls that child to go beyond where they are. Do you know, literally men do this. But women will talk to children in their language. They'll use baby talk and things like that. Men will purpose. They don't even know they do it. Men will not. Men will just talk to them straight up and tell them the whole thing. Requiring the children to grow their brain to understand. Men and women automatically do this difference. About two weeks after this event in the playground happened, Diane was listening to, uh, to some family uh, ministry that was talking about difference in men and women. And she says, yes, men challenge their children to go beyond where they are. Women meet their children right where they are. And he's like, she's like, oh, he wasn't abusing him. We can laugh about it now. Trust me, it wasn't funny then. <laughs> he was training the boys to be men. And this is what he wrote. After this event, he started something we know as Boy Scouts. Now, Boy Scouts is take the turn. Boy Scouts is not doing what he started to do. But he actually wrote this. This is in the 1911 Boy Scout Handbook. The same thing that entered into the training of these men, knights and pioneers, must enter into the training of Boy Scouts today. Just as they respected women and served them, so the tenderfoot and the scout must be polite and kind to women. Not merely to well-dressed women, but to poorly dressed women. Not merely to young women, but to old women. To women wherever they may be found. Wherever they may be, to these, a scout must always be courteous and helpful. A scout is walking with a lady or a child. He should always walk on the outside of the sidewalk so that he can better protect them against the jostling crowd. This rule is only altered when crossing the street, when the scout should get between the lady and the traffic, so as to shield her from the accident or mud. Also, in meeting a child or a woman, a scout, as a matter of course, should always make way for them, even if he himself has stepped off the sidewalk into the mud. When riding in a streetcar or a train, a scout should never allow a woman, an elderly person, or a child to stand, but will always offer his seat. And when he does, he should do it cheerfully and with a smile. Let me ask you, is that being a godly person or is that microaggression? We laugh, but it's not funny. 
That's the culture we live in. Several decades, several decades after the, several decades after the Birkenhead, Birkenhead went down, the Titanic went down. They asked themselves a question. We're going to make it. There's not enough lifeboats. What are we going to do? Okay, boys. Women and children first. Okay, that's great. How old's a man? 14. You're going to stand on the deck with the men. At the age of 14 years old, John Quincy Adams was the assistant to the ambassador of Russia. The word teenager did not exist in vocabulary before the, the first use, the earliest use they can find is the 1930s. So for millennia, there was never even such thing as a teenager. There were young men and there were young women. Lest we think that this is all cultures. There was a letter written by the ambassador of Japan. This was, in, this was in April 17th, 1912. When the Titanic went down, the ambassador said this. He said, if the, if the men on the, on the Titanic had been Japanese, the men would have been the first off, the, second would have been the, the children would have been second off, women would have been third. That's how we value life. To prove that point... Those who came out of the French Revolution, who believed that humanism was the way, who denied God and said, we don't need biblical culture, we can create our own morality ourselves, were aboard the French ship Burgoyne in 1898. It was rammed, and it was beginning to sink. 295 surviving men on board beat the women and children with oars and threw them overboard, killing 100 women. And children, only one survived. It's the biblical worldview. It's living like Christ, laying his life down. Men, that's how we change society. Two thousand and one, nine eleven. Some of you might not have been born. Some of you may have heard of it. I remember it well. I remember where I was. This was written not in a Christian magazine. It was written in a secular newspaper. It records a conversation. I don't think we're going to get out of this thing. I'm going to have to go out on faith. It was the voice of Todd Beamer, the passenger. He's a Wheaton College graduate. It's a Christian school. He's the one who said, let's roll, as he led the charge against the terrorists who hijacked United Flight 93, the one you will remember that crashed in the Pennsylvania countryside. 
The whole world knows how brave Beamer and his fellow passengers were on September 11th. But this week, we learn more fully, this was written back when it happened, more fully what buttressed the bravery. Faith in Jesus Christ. Secular newspaper. Todd died as he lived, a faithful evangelical believer. In an article titled, The Real Story of Flight 93, Newsweek reveals gripping new details from the actual transcripts of the now-recovered cockpit voice recorder. Todd had been afraid, Newsweek relates. More than once, he cried out for his Savior. It's not about not being afraid. It's about stepping out when you are. After passengers were herded to the back of the jet, Beamer called the GTE Customer Center in Oakbury, Illinois. He told Supervisor Lisa Jefferson about the hijacking. The passengers were planning to jump the terrorists, he said, and then he asked her to pray with him. As Newsweek relates, Beamer kept a Lord's Prayer bookmark in his Tom Clancy novel, but he didn't need any prompting. He began to recite the ancient litany, and Jefferson joined him. Our Father, which art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. As they finished, Beamer added, Jesus, help me. And then Beamer and his fellow passengers prayed a prayer that has comforted millions down through the centuries. The prayer that David wrote in a time of great anguish, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, through I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And as he finished the prayer, He said now the famous last words. Are you guys ready? Let's roll. We now know from the cockpit voice recorder that Beamer and the other passengers wrestled with the hijackers, forced the plane to crash into the ground, killing themselves, but foiling what was believed to have been the hijackers' plan to fly Flight 93 into the Capitol or the White House. As Christians, we know that God can bring good out of evil. In Todd Beamer, the world witnesses a faith that held up in the extremity of fear, a faith that is even comforting his widow and two young sons. It wasn't Todd Beamer's job to fight terrorists. Oh, no, no, I can't do that, Lord. That's not my job. That's not my calling. He was just a passenger who, along with several others, did what he didn't have to do but foiled a terrible evil that might have been done to his country. As Flight 93 hurtled towards destruction, Todd Beamer could not have known that his quiet prayers would ultimately be heard by millions. He had no idea we'd be standing here talking about this right now. All he knew is, Lord, I got to do what I got to do, and this is when I got to do it. There is no other time. It's all he knew. That story of his last acts on earth would be a witness to the Lord he loved and served and a lasting example of true heroism. The writer of Hebrews, in writing the chapter of faith, that faith that has been handed down to us, the great crowd of, cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, he writes this, he says this, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, 
Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered mountains, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains in imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. These are people in the Old Testament. Regular people, mothers, fathers, husbands, sons, brothers, sisters. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. They did that so we could have what's better. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, 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 since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'm going to jump to the end and come back to what's next. There's a young woman. We know her as blessed of women. We know her as an incredible righteous woman. That's somewhere within the age of 14 to 16 years old. Young woman. Remember they didn't have teenagers. She took on the shame of the cross. An angel came to her and said, will you let me, will you let the Holy Spirit come on you and you become pregnant outside of wedlock in a culture in which you'll be despised, shamed, and maybe even stoned, but trusting that God is bigger than all that? Will you do that? Will your Lord? She said, yes, I'll do that. But there's an unsung hero in that story. His name is Joseph. He was a man who was going to take a woman who was pregnant, wasn't his child. He was going to cover her. He was going to love her. He was going to adopt that child. He was going to raise that child as his own. He was going to restore her reputation. He was going to make it known that this was a godly woman. And that was a godly man. Now I started off, I'm going to come back to that quote. 
I started off by saying this in one of his university lecture Q&A sessions. A young woman from the audience asked Jer Jordan Peterson, what's the antidote for toxic masculinity? What's the antidote for toxic masculinity? And his response was, put it up, responsible masculinity. Responsible masculinity. This isn't a choice that we can make. This is what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men, mothers, how are you raising your kids? Your sons? How are you treating your husbands? Husbands? How are you taking this? The answer for toxic masculinity is responsible masculinity. Thank you.